This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am back with Marty and Reed Dent to continue our introduction to the prophecy of Isaiah and consider Walter Brueggemann's ideas about the prophetic imagination. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's good to be back with you guys. Uh, <laughs> good to be back. <laughs> um, so, so pleased that you're here. Nothing, nothing could possibly go wrong in this recording, I'm sure. It's been really smooth. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so before before we maybe move into what you actually prepared for us, Marty ended last episode talking about the idea of what a prophet is, mm. and I think the definition that Heschel has is this like beautiful, nuanced visual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually, in preparation for these recordings, I was listening to a couple of Bible Project episodes on prophecy in general. And they pointed out that the text itself actually has a pretty clear definition of the role of a prophet in Exodus 6 and 7. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read it real quick. Please. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. So it is it is the voice of God through someone else. Yeah, and I think it actually fits Heschel's work really well, because Heschel... He really went against this idea of the prophet is more than a mouthpiece. Like I remember reading that chapter in Heschel's work and being like, well, that's essentially what we said in the podcast. And now I feel bad. Um, but I mean, that verse really encapsulates it. Yes, you have a message to give. Yes, I'm going to. But you will, like one of my favorite parts of that verse that I use in other material is you will be as God to Pharaoh. There's that solidarity. There's that pathos. There's that nuanced. You have a message but you have also been with me. You know where I'm at. You've experienced my experience and you get to go give that to those who don't have that same experience, that same pathos. So I, I think that definitely, I wasn't sure where, where you were going to go or what Bible Project had said, but I, I think that works perfectly with what we learned from Heschel. Yeah, uh, I I agree. And I think um, it's not so much the that a prophet speaks for God. That is like a, at least in the church that I grew up in, that's not so much the, the hang up or the, the problem. The question becomes, okay, so what is the like true substance of a prophetic message? Uh, what is it meant to be about? And maybe are there some ways that we caricature it or that we exaggerate it, make it kind of cartoonish and not really real to what we find in the biblical prophets, if that makes sense. So like for me, um, I grew up in a church that was fairly charismatic. And I know that this is not everybody's church experience, but there are some people out there who are listening uh, who maybe come from something like that, where we actually had so-called prophets who would come to the church. Um, and you could uh, you could make like an appointment with the prophet. Uh, 
and the prophet would uh, speak into your life is like a, a phrase that was used, um, or they would prophesy over you. And typically what that looked like was uh, something that God was going to do for you in the future or what you were going to be in the future. Um, like a word of prophecy would tell you that you're supposed to be an accountant or you're supposed to be a car salesman, or usually it's like you're supposed to be in the ministry. Um, and <laughs> convenient. <laughs> uh, and then, um, as I, uh, got out of that church, which again, there are things that I'm very thankful for about that. I'm not throwing that church under the bus, um, but that was the experience of prophecy there. And then I started reading, you know, like the prophets, the actual biblical prophets, and started reading things like Heschel and other things about them and learning more. And I realized that there were like some kernels of truth in uh, what they were doing, but that uh, it was uh, kind of out of context and pulled out of shape um, and that the emphasis was just in the wrong place. So like, for example, um, our prophecy in our church was very individualistic. It was addressed to you and your personal kind of destiny, you know? Um, and it was, uh, very much, like I said, about what God would do for you. Um, and it was also very future oriented. And I think even for people who don't have the charismatic background that I had, uh, this idea of the prophets are people who tell the future is probably common. Um, and the reason I say there are kernels of truth in there, but that that's out of shape is that yes, like there is some element of talking about things that are going to happen. But it's all the the thrust of it is the prophets very much have their eye on the present. They are if they're speaking about the future, it is so that they can motivate some kind of action in the present. And um, also of note here, what's important is that it's not it's not to individuals. Um, sometimes the prophets, like we talked about last episode, they're talking to um, kings, right? Um, but they're not telling the king like their like their personal destiny they're speaking to them because they are speaking to the nation through them they the the king stands in for the people and the king is the one who has the power to direct the course of the people so that's why they're talking to kings but really the message of the prophets is directed to the people as a whole which we talked about last time and that the prophets saw themselves situated as one of that whole um and so Prophet, pro prophetic words, I think, are more accurately or better addressed to communities of people rather than I'm sitting down with you and I'm telling you like what you're going to do with your life in the future. Um, and that a lot of what they were asking for, um, they're not there to tell you what God's going to do for you. I mean, there is that element. We talked about the, the sprinkling of hope. But what they're going on and on and on about is kind of what God demands of you in the present, like these calls for justice and righteousness and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so I came across this, uh, this from, from Frederick Buechner, who I referenced. You came across it from Buechner. I've read it 10 million times. <laughs> he recites this as he's trying to fall asleep. He just recites Buechner every night. <laughs> yes, yes. 
I was about to say that's my own Shema, but I'd, that would be <laughs> that would be offensive. So, of course, I'm not going to say that. That's just, uh, you know, I appreciate the beacon. I was just trying to, to poke at you a no, little I bit. Get it, I, I, get I, it. Didn't, I didn't mean to My, spur you into our, blasphemy. Our students, uh, well, you always do that, Brent, spurring me to blasphemy. Our, our students, you know, that's at, our, what I'm known our for. students at CCF are constantly ridiculing me about how much I talk about Beekner, but what, what are you going to do? Um, and he says this, he says, prophet means spokesman, not fortune teller. And that was the kind of vibe that I got when growing up was more like fortune teller. And then he says, the one whom in their unfathomable audacity, the prophets claimed to speak for was the Lord and creator of the universe. There's that pathos, the solidarity that we were talking about. And it is audacious because I'm not just talking for the president or for my dad. I'm speaking for the creator of the universe. In that sense, Aaron kind of had it easy speaking <laughs> for Moses because yeah. Moses was was taken on the audacity. Right. I mean, imagine this just the, I think actually Brueggemann talks about this elsewhere, but even just the se- the words thus says the Lord are a terrible and frightful thing to have to say. Uh, and so, um, then Beekner's last line of this definition is he says, there is no evidence to suggest that anyone ever asked a prophet home for supper more than once. And I, I think that's, <laughs> I think it's funny, but I also think that it's getting at what the substance of their speech really was about, mm-hmm. because if prophets were soothsayers, if they were, I mean, there's a line in Jeremiah talking about false prophets saying, they say peace, peace when there is no peace. Um, if if prophets are just going around saying like everything's going to be okay, God's got you, like you're going to do great things, like of course then people would be like, yeah, come over for supper, we want to have you again. But if the prophets are um, like accusing, which they are, and they're pointing out this is where we've gone off the rails, which they are, and sometimes they're doing that in radical ways not just in their speech, but in their actions, which they do, uh, then it's like, yeah, we, we'll, we'll just maybe run into you somewhere else later. But you're, there's, there's something uncomfortable. There's something offensive, like about the message. Well, I think like of the opening of Isaiah, where he, like he is calling out the whole nation and he addresses the heavens and the earth. Like mm. he wants everybody to hear this. This is not a private dinner party where he's confronting you on something he is absolutely he is laying out your sins in front of the whole nation and in front of the whole earth absolutely yeah i remember when we did jeremiah a few years ago i just kind of took down a sampling of here are here are words that jeremiah actually says on behalf of god and it's like if you if you if you cannot handle god offending you and saying things that sometimes just sound kind of mean or confrontational at the very least, like this is not for you. Um, we, it's not, <laughs> you know, this is why, especially the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven poster everywhere. I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope in a future like that pulled out of the context of Jeremiah's life who got like thrown down in a cistern and <laughs> left for dead and everybody hated him. Like that's, you know, 
we gotta we we need the context. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's kind of like starting to get at um, what a prophet actually is. Um, and I think that what we want to talk about for uh, the the episode is uh, this other book, this other resource. It's a fantastic resource called The Prophetic Imagination, which is by Walter Brueggemann, who is a name I'm I'm pretty sure he's got to have come up on Bema in the past, right? <laughs> Dozens and dozens of times. A tad. Yeah, exactly. Which just in case anybody wants to know. How many episodes have we done on the prophets? Yeah, exactly. All of those. uh, B-R-U-E-G-G, two G's, E-M-A-N-N, two N's. I can never keep it straight, but I just double G, double N. Okay, now we know if you want to look it up. Brueggemann. By the way, I did a YouTube video on this book uh, as a recommendation, Brent, if you want to throw that in the show notes. Oh, nice. Yes, very good. Yeah, speaking of show notes, you don't have to figure out how to spell it. You don't have to remember that because it's all in the show notes. Yeah. But but don't Uh, you want to know how to spell it? Don't don't you want to know? Look look at it and learn. Some people (laughs) are um, oral listeners. They they need to hear it. So, So, Reed, one of the things that I found so helpful... you know, as we're considering what a prophet is or what a prophet isn't, not a fortune teller, mm-hmm. a spokesman, those kind of things from Beekner's quote, you asked us kind of in preparation for this lesson. Like if we were to ask, if we were to think about who are prophets from our own mm-hmm. era, mm-hmm. like who are prophets today, mm-hmm. I, we we naturally kind of know what's being asked. And the names that come to mind, I feel like for most all of us, aren't fortune teller names. They're these cultural provocations. Provocateurs. Ah, that's a great will. word. You know, that's a great word for it. It's. I stole that actually from Shane Claiborne. He he spoke of prophets not being fortune tellers, but really pro- provocateurs of the imagination. And that's what made me think of the quote, thinking of Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination. Provoca- provocateurs with a purpose, not just there to shock yes. you for the, because yeah, we don't yeah, need yeah. more people, right? To sh- right? No. But I'm trying to get you, we talked about this a little bit last time, right? Trying to get you up off your seat and uh, doing whatever God is asking of us. Yeah. And so you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. in the last episode. You you, you mentioned, as we talked about this, Wendell Berry. I, I threw on that list like Bono or even Banksy, um, which you can you can tell my, my suggestions are starting to lack more and more depth. But... Um, <laughs> But I still feel like they function in this in this same kind of like this provocative way mm-hmm. to, to they they have some kind of ins not and I'm not putting them on the same level as Isaiah or that kind of inspiration but they have this inspired um, word mm-hmm. this inspired critique to give about the day and age that we live in and so that helped me when I thought yeah. about that I thought that was. Yeah. That was helpful. Yeah. MLK is a big one for me. Wendell Berry is definitely a big one for me. People who um, like the prophets and maybe for some of them, like Banksy, I would say there is something prophetic about what he is doing. Um, I have no, as we talked about before, like the, the job of a prophet is not just to bring about uh, social justice, quote unquote, um, like in a, it, there, there is an element of faith and theology that is also important there, you know, and I have no idea, you know, where someone like Banksy falls there, but in the sense that, uh, he is, uh, with his message and with his, uh, actions, like calling out, uh, the sins of the people, like at a systemic social level, then yes. Um, when I think about like MLK and I think about, Wendell Berry too. Uh, I didn't quite hit on this last time, but 
it's not just the message. It's the it's like there is something radical also about the lifestyle that um, also preaches uh, whatever it is that they are preaching. Um, like Wendell Berry has devoted himself to living in this small little town in Kentucky and farms his own little plot of land and still writes out his manuscripts uh, with pen and paper or on a typewriter. Um, the last I heard is that he stopped like going to speak at places that you had to take an airplane to get to because his message is a lot about environmental things and agricultural stuff. And he was just devoted with his life to his. So anyway, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's probably, um, instructive for people to imagine, are there people that, you know, um, or that can think of, and as you have a note in here, Marty, in the show notes or in front of me that just says a million, um, unfamous people that don't carry celebrity status, right? There are many, many people who act as prophets, um, that we don't ever hear of. Yeah. I'm grateful for those voices Mm. in my life that, you know, they're, they're not. Anybody special, quote unquote, I don't know what I'm trying to say with that, but they mm-hmm. they play a role and they play it well. And they yeah. they they speak things that everybody else is going to be afraid to say. And they just do it so naturally because it's what God's calls out of them. For sure. Um, OK, so then what is a prophet? Uh, somebody who speaks for God, um, somebody who says things that maybe uh, we don't find incredibly easy to stomach. Um uh, and so let's get into Brueggemann's prophetic imagination here because he kind of lines it out in more detail. Uh, and where he starts uh, is by saying um, first that the prophet enters into like a wider story, um, that a prophet comes to a people who have already been given a calling or a vocation, uh, who have already been rescued, uh, who have already been um uh, like commissioned for a task, a purpose. Uh, and so it's not just like some, um, like, you know, fortune teller to use the word again, kind of dropping out of nowhere with like a misty crystal ball, um, and speaking to you like is as if the whole context of your life didn't matter. It's saying to the people of Israel, Hey, remember where you came from. This message is coming because, uh, like, you were rescued, you were set apart uh, with this purpose to be a a kingdom of priests to the world, uh, to live in this way in order to show the one true God to the nations, uh, to bring about the healing of the world. Like, you were set apart for this, uh, and you're not you're not doing it. Like, you're not living faithfully. So the prophets aren't just coming up with a sandwich board on them telling everybody how terrible they are so that they can know how like immoral or something they are. They're almost, there's an element of reminding in where they're coming from. I'm reminding you of where you come from and I'm kind of holding you to that. Uh, you, you had, God had rescued you and you had said, yes, we will do what we can to be faithful. We will do all that we can. And the prophet is like, okay, Here's here's what that looks like here. That's here's how that's being um, forsaken. Um, and so there is a, we start with a calling and then Brueggemann says uh, there is a recognition from the prophet that that calling has been um, he calls it, uh, I think, domesticated by the dominant culture is what he says. 
which is to say like you've settled maybe you've settled down like if you're if you're in uh, in Amos you know you're at the height of your prosperity um and you're like living in the lap of luxury or maybe like we talked about uh, like we're talking about with Isaiah and Ahaz you're on the brink of disaster um and you are running to the big wicked superpower to protect you and save you you are letting your calling uh, to be set apart and different and holy, you are letting that be co-opted by the dominant culture. Um, and he talks about how uh, the dominant culture, and he, he talks about Moses, actually, um, and he talks about Egypt and Pharaoh, and he says that that culture has a religion of triumphalism, is the word that he uses, uh, and a politics of oppression. These are all very Brueggemann-sounding kinds of expressions. Um, but essentially what he means, and I'm glad that this just is about ancient history and has nothing to do with the time and place that we live in now, because Thank that, goodness. Would, that would be tough. But when he talks about a religion of triumphalism, it is essentially like, we are here to win. We are here to conquer. We are here to prosper. We are here to shape the world in our image, um, with our values, whatever those values might be. Um, that is it, that is what we are here to do, and that there is a sense in which the fate of the world like depends on us winning, uh, and so we have to triumph all the time. And it's like in in light of that triumph, it's like a self worship of our own success. Oh yeah, that definitely attends it for sure. I mean, one of the things that happens when the calling gets co-opted is that the people set aside the worship of God for the worship of all of these other things. Uh could be false gods like the gods of Egypt. Um could be uh in our own place and time. I just preached about this the other night. Uh, it could be about, um, you know, our own ideals of economy or military or progress or might or democracy or whatever. Like we have all these things that kind of come in and they end up co-opting or dominating or domesticating the call we have also received. Um, and then he also talks about what attends with that is a politics of oppression, meaning the people who are losing we don't really need to care about them. They're dead weight. We need to cut them out. We need to forget about them because they're just getting in the way of our triumph, of our winning. And so the people at the bottom of the ladder, they can, like, they're useful insofar as they're propelling us, like, uh, to winning, even if, like, they get discarded. I mean, this is this is the story of the bricks, right, in, in Exodus, uh, we got to keep winning. So more bricks, double it, make your own straw. Like, and if you're not going to do it, then, then buy, we'll find somebody else. Like you, you're, you're not, you're useless to us. And so one of the things that Brueggemann highlights is the dominant culture that all of these prophets are speaking into. There is a cause and effect between that religion of triumphalism and people remaining oppressed. Um, and so the job of the prophet is to uh, first call that out, to say, you are not living like you are living. We've already touched on this. Then the job of the prophet, and this is where the, I think, where the phrase imagination comes in, the prophet imagines something else. And one of Brueggemann's favorite words 
is the word alternative. What is an alternative culture? What is an alternative uh, consciousness? Um, and the prophet through uh, pathos is evoking that. Um, not necessarily like laying out the civic blueprints for like, here's a new constitution and here are all like the laws and rules, but more like this is a world that is possible that God wants to make possible where there are things like justice and righteousness and mercy um, and all of that other stuff. They are evoking that uh, for the people in their speech. And sort of as a, a counter to the idea of triumphalism and politics of oppression, uh, the way that Brueggemann frames the alternative is uh, it is he calls it the religion of um, Yahweh's freedom, um, which is interesting. Uh, and I think what he means by that is uh, the God, the God who is Adonai. Uh, is perfectly free to do whatever God wants to do and is bound by nothing. Um, and that people should be free to worship this God in the way that this God is. I mean, this is like, again, back to the Exodus. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, let us go so that what? So that we can go worship in the desert. Right. So that there can be worship. Um, and Brueggemann says, if there is um, the freedom to trust in this God who is uh, absolutely free, then what there should be is a politics, he calls it, of justice and compassion, which just takes us right back to where we were last week. Yeah, there's like a perfect mirroring um, in how he framed it. I love this book so much. This is not a big book. So... Heschel was like 700 pages. Prophetic imagination is this really small thing. I wouldn't call it easy to read because it's Brueggemann, but it's it's this compact, but it was just so packed full of goodness. So as you I as you laid this out, like these two things stand, like you you called them a counter. So instead mm -hmm. of a politic of oppression, you have a politic of justice and compassion. So so this politic of Adonai's freedom stands opposed to or counter to a religion of triumphalism. There's a religion instead of Adonai's freedom. So if triumphalism is this, we win, we conquer, we create a system, and everybody has to fall in line to that because that's how we are triumphant. The counter to that is the freedom of Adonai, which there is no system that we create where we win that everybody falls over. That's just Adonai's mm -hmm. love and justice and righteousness and compassion and shalom and wholeness and order that fills all of creation. By the way, this book is 125 pages long. Um, so <laughs> mm -hmm. it is one, one fifth of what uh, Heschel's book is. Um, and I, you know, it's, I, I'm sure that people who listen are familiar uh, with, biblical notions of justice, but I will just highlight it for a, for a quick second in case anybody is uh, not sure what is meant by that. Um, because we have uh, a sort of American idea about justice that is like a tit for tat kind of thing. Um, the scales have to be balanced. Everything like if something is taken, it has to be paid back. 
Uh, punishment is a part of it. It's either punitive, it's subjugative, or it's retributive. Right, right, exactly. Um, and what what the prophets have in mind when they are talking about justice and what Brueggemann has in mind when he talks about a politics of justice is um, – and, and the reason why this is a counter to a politics of oppression is because is it, justice means the people who, who are on the bottom – who are getting used to make everything else flourish, they are pulled out of the bottom and they are set up on a level with everyone else. And they're not used just for, they're not exploited for some bigger function uh, to make everybody else prosper, but they are given respect and they are given uh, protection within the community. Uh, they are given relationship in the community. They are incorporated into the life of the community. And so, you know, in the Bible, uh, other people have talked about this idea of the quartet of the vulnerable. Um, the ones who come up are again and again in the prophets, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, people who the system is not working in their favor as it's designed right now. Uh, it's harder for them. They are more vulnerable to... Uh, to suffering, to danger, to exploitation, or or in, or in in maybe more Hebraic thought for those that bristle against all the socio political ramifications of this and have a hard time getting to that spot. In the Hebraic thought, these two ideas of righteousness and justice, mishpat, mm-hmm. zedekah, the these are these are terms that speak of they would think of shalom, of everything being in right relationship, and and when I say right relationship. A straight line versus a crooked line, a bent line. So these straight, whole relationships get twisted, get corrupted, get bent out of shape. And justice and righteousness is the work of straightening those relationships back out. And that's why the people on the bottom are restored to some different place. That's why oppressive systems get, not just because there's a social or a political ideal or ideology, but because... When things are as God intends them to be, everything is in its right place, mm-hmm. and and that's the that's the idea of justice and and righteousness that drives the Hebrew idea behind that. Yep, that's good. That's good. There's this there's this uh, there's this base note. There's this undercurrent of the way things are meant to be. Everything in its right place. And I I actually thought about this a little bit in the last episode, and I didn't say it, but I'll say it now. And that is that like. The the anger of the prophets when they are doing um, this critiquing and calling out, um, it actually is substantial in my mind because it is rooted in something that is ultimately good. Like they're not just cynical, right? They're not just pessimists who are like seeing all the bad things uh, or convinced that the world is like gone to hell in a handbasket or something. They are convinced that actually the way of things as God created it is shalom and that God is guiding it towards this, that God is holding it all, that it comes from this, that is going towards this. And so they're, they're angry that it's not living up to that potential in the meantime, in the here and now. Uh, and so that's, that's where it comes from. It's rooted not in just anger for anger's sake, uh, but it is rooted in actually a deep belief in the goodness, the hope uh, of God's shalom. Well, there's a method that you refer to the coming from Brueggemann. There's a method yeah. he talks about that's in your notes where the critique has to begin with, I love this thought. It begins with grief. Mm-hmm. 
the energizing yeah. begins in hope. There is a relationship between grief and hope. So the prophet yeah. has to get you to come to grips with the mortality, to come mm-hmm. to grips with the like the death and the wrongness. But then there's also this hope of how right it could be, how wrong it is, but how right it could be. And then Brueggemann links those ideas of hope and and grief where you can't have only those who have great hope could truly grieve, but only those who know how to grieve can, you can't have somebody that's like, oh, I don't really like grief, but I have a ton of hope. Those things are related. Yeah. The people that have great hope are able to grieve. I, I loved that concept. Yeah. He says, uh, this is a quote uh, from page 11, where he says, uh, real criticism begins in the capacity to grieve because grief is the most visceral announcement that things are not right. Only in the empire are we pressed and urged and invited to pretend that things are all right. Oof. So we begin with grief because that's the, that's the most raw, honest way of acknowledging this isn't right. There is a right that it should be. There's a, there's a purpose. There's a design. There's an intention here. And it is not as it should be, and so they grieve. I put that quote on my whiteboard a few years ago. That was a good one. Oh, so good. Uh, yeah, so that is the way that th- when the prophet is evoking this alternative to the world that is presented to us by Pharaoh, by whatever other superpowers there might happen to be, if I knew of any, uh, the prophet evokes this alternative through this double-sided uh, message that you were just talking about, Marty. One side is critique, and the other side is energizing. And there has to be both. Yep. Um, there, there has to be, if we only have criticism uh, and we don't have energizing, then we're just a bunch of like cool, like punk rock listening, ironic hipster kids who like can go around all day making fun of all the stuff that's dumb and stupid. Look, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to be able to like point out what's dumb and stupid. We get it. Okay. There has to be an accompanying and here is where things are going to go from here. This is how anything gets better. Uh, This is how this is a call to justice and righteousness. It's not just that you're worshiping idols, but here we need to pursue like let justice flow like a mighty river. You know what I'm saying? That is the energizing message. Um, but yeah, the first part is the critique, the acknowledgement. Things aren't right. We got to, <laughs> and we got to acknowledge that we are also complicit in that, um, that we play a part in this. Like you said, all, maybe not everybody is guilty. Maybe you haven't committed like a specific crime, but this, we, we all share responsibility um, and maybe because we're all in some way, even if I'm not creating the oppression, I'm benefiting from it. Yep. You know? Ooh. Yeah. Yep. And this is the, I, I, again, I think this is the perfect balance of the two sides of a conversation that we typically fall on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. I mean, people know I have no problem with the, with the deconstructionist camp. I have no problem with the word. I have a, a ton of empathy for all those things, I find myself a part of the, what I would call a movement of deconstruction. I'm all I'm all in, and yet, if there's a weakness to that conversation, it's that it's typically motored by, powered by criticism mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and less energizing. We're on the flip side. The church that's being deconstructed is like, hey, can we just do without the criticism and just do the energizing? No, because that's how we end up in the service of this imperial worldview mm-hmm. that has to be torn down. So you really have to have a marriage of these two things. Yeah, I was uh, I was talking with my brother-in-law um, last week and talking about like he's he's been in and out of church and has spent a long time not being in church and they've recently started going back to a church and we were talking about he was trying to kind of put language to why he doesn't feel comfortable in church and we ended up figuring out that it's because a lot of the churches that he's been in or all of them actually have been churches that have all energizing and hope and no grief no acknowledgement that things aren't as they should be. And what happens then is that just becomes sentimentality. That's just, it's, it's weak. It's fluffy. It doesn't have the power to actually like get you up off your seat. Cause you're like, ah, oh, things are, things are okay. You know, like when we're only singing about the things we tend to sing about, uh, that are happy and make me feel good. That is, uh, impotent is the word. Can't do anything. Um, and so, yeah, there is the 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 real grief and the real hope uh, that the prophet is speaking, and they're doing that through their messages. They're doing that through their actions. Um, and one of the things that I have noticed about this um, is that we the the capacity for grief and the capacity for hope, I think, are actually interconnected. Um, and that if you want to take away, like if looking at how not right things are in the world, if that makes you uncomfortable and you want to get away from that, you want to take that away and be like, oh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Like you can do that, but you also then are impairing your ability to feel real hope and real joy. Like that goes all the way down to the most fundamental level of who you are there. You kind of flatten everything or like when you choose to stop feeling you don't get to choose where that uh, stops, like, or where the boundary of that is. You kind of make yourself into this, like, we live in this middle space where we don't really care about much. Like, we're pretty apathetic. And I think this is why um, Heschel talks about this. He says, um, it is not a world devoid of meaning that evokes the prophet's consternation. It is a world deaf to meaning, is what he says. Like, we're all just, uh, yeah, I'm fine. I'll just kind of keep, I'll, I'll just, you know, do my barbecue and I'll do my scrolling and I'll keep up with my scores and I'll, I'll do all that kind of stuff and not think too much about like the causes that we have for grief in our local communities or in my own life or in the world at large. And I'll just kind of keep floating along. And the prophets get so worked up because they want you to be like, they want you to wake up to both sides of that. And so that's kind of what makes a prophet in their energizing and in their critique. Like uh, we talked about how it's, it's not psychosis. It's not, they're not crazy. They might seem a little crazy because they feel things so intensely. They're actually more in touch with reality than we are, who are just kind of like half anesthetized, half asleep all the time. Well, I feel like it serves as like the perfect, I see you've pulled out my, in your notes here, I see you've pulled out one of my favorite other quotes and it serves as like a great segue to his thoughts on doxology. I, okay. I thought that was another one of my favorite thoughts there. Yeah, so the, where he says prophecy without doxology becomes ideology? Ooh, yes, absolutely. When you live in this middle, depending on which direction you're facing from the middle, hmm. when you don't embrace this tension of grief and hope, um, 
the capacity for great grief, the capacity for great hope. If you end up with just prophecy without doxology, you end up just having ideology, which, like we talked about relevance earlier, that that feels that feels relevant to the world we live in today. Yeah. And I th- I think another way of saying is, is like this has to be rooted in God. Uh, the prophecy has to be rooted in a conviction about God, in a devotion to God, in a hope in God. Um, and if it's not, then yeah, it just becomes an ideology. And we've seen this, we've already talked about it, like ideologies on the left and on the right. We have our things that we kind of our pets that we want to protect and we want to care about. We want to say this is what matters and your thing is stupid. But when prophecy is rooted in God, in doxology, in praise of God, in hope for God uh, to do something, then it becomes actually capable of transforming, moving people to action, setting things right, um, and creating, as Brueggemann says, an alternative, the alternative kingdom that God, an alternative world that God makes possible that is not possible by whatever the powers of the age are. Right. And then I, I think it's, it's, that's mostly wrapping up the conversation here on Brueggemann's book. Uh, and I think for me paints a helpful picture of like recognizing when I'm reading Isaiah or when I'm reading Amos or when I'm reading um, like Nahum or whoever recognizing, okay, this is a this is an act of criticism. And then I'm also looking for, okay, where is the energizing coming in? And to be honest, like, okay, so the Bergman, uh, the final little thing in the notes here is he he identifies kind of a a three-part arc to the prophetic message, which is something you guys have already talked about before, right? You start with the indictment, here's what's wrong. You move to a call for repentance, you need to turn around. And if you don't, like there's a warning that's coming of like uh, there's going to be judgment. In Heschel's words, we talked about this in the last episode. In Heschel's words, uh, what was it that he said about um, uh, if you don't trust the story, you will not remain? Like that. Those are obviously not Heschel's. That's my my words. Right. But we were talking about that in the <laughs> like that whole idea of there's a call to repentance because if you don't, this is unsustainable in God's economy. It will fall apart. Right, and not just because like God is arbitrarily going to punish it, but because the actual system is like unsustainable. Correct. It's going to collapse. Right. Which is a part of the indictment and a part of that critique that Brueggemann keeps arguing for. You yeah. are getting people to realize the ultimate mortality of what they think is immortal. Mm-hmm. Like there is an end to this thing that they think is ultimately triumphant. It's not. Yeah. Uh, and then like something the the final bit, and it's kind of intention actually with the, the second part is a call to change and turn around. And there's also a recognition that like, uh, while, while God takes very seriously the, the call to the people to live faithfully, there is also a, a vision in the prophets, uh, of like, and this is the third and final part is ultimately like God is the one who is going to save God is the one who is going to make right uh, and so there is both a, you need to get in action and do this. And also our hope is in God alone, that God is going to make this right eventually. And that's the final word of hope. Like it's not going to be bad forever, that God's going to restore our fortunes. God's going to like bring us to this mountain. God is going to swallow up death forever. Um, and that's kind of where it ends. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap up. Hopefully these two episodes will get us in a good place to start actually digging into Isaiah. I'll tell you, those are two good sources. I always like to start a series if there's anything relevant 
we did it with revelation we we do it often with like what are the sources that you can have if you want some some companions to study mm-hmm. as we look at this stuff i feel like heschel and brueggemann are two sides of a coin that are just really 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 good two of the best sources that we've we've found in conversations surrounding the prophets for sure and even if you don't have time to read heschel brueggemann is you know, nice and succinct at 125 pages or whatever you said. Yep. Not enough. The whole conversation's not easy, but at least uh, at least you can get those ideas in your mind as we go forward. Absolutely. Okay, well, next week we are on to the actual text of Isaiah. We'll be starting there. Um, in the meantime, you can go to BamaDiscipleship.com to find our show notes. Uh get into a group to discuss this to you know like there are a lot of practical implications for the idea of prophecy and what we're going to be studying so like having a group together of of people that you can wrestle through these ideas is um, a recommended idea let's say um all all of our events are there uh the contact page there is going to give you the best and most up-to-date way to get in touch Uh, so either way thanks for joining us on the baymall podcast we'll talk to you again soon Now, speaking of prophecy, Ho- yeah, but hold on, oh, do you have something <laughs> serious? <laughs> speaking of prophecy, okay, let's talk about that. So, as we record, yeah, we are that we are September fourteenth. This is the beginning of week two, so only one week of NFL we've football. Had, we've has had happened. one week, one week of NFL. Okay, football. let me let me go ahead and just um, when this episode is released, it will be the beginning of week seven. So, after six games, let's hear it. From our two prophets. Well, I, uh, what will, we need what to go back. We need to go back to the prophecy that was already made. Hold on, just listen for a second because I'm going to try to like have some integrity here and own this. Uh, oh, I doubt that. But let's go ahead. I'll give you because, the because. Okay, so when Derek and I recorded the episode where we made fun of Marty for predicting that the Chiefs were going to lose to the Lions in Week One, uh, I did not know. Amazing coincidence thanks lord for that episode (laughs) releasing on the day on thursday september 7th when that opening game happened now there's another way no there's another way to phrase this on the day in which the prophecy would be fulfilled (laughs) would be another way you could say that (laughs) so i i have to suffer some humiliation because literally everybody who listens to this podcast is listening to me and it's so fresh in their minds because then what happens marty's prediction is fulfilled his prophecy is fulfilled. The Chiefs lose um, a very frustrating opening game to the Lions, 21 to 20. Okay, so let me just start by saying, Marty, you were right. They Thank won. They, what and I said- also had to suffer, too, because my Bengals looked 10 times worse than the Chiefs did. So bad. But I made no prophecies. I uttered no predictions, Brent. I'm not, I can't tell you. Week seven, I feel I'm feeling nothing. The only the only things I've been willing to say is I do believe the Chiefs are ten or seven, maybe nine or eight at the end of the season. I'll put that out there. Week seven, I'll go on the record. I just want to. I just want to know. So both of your teams stand zero and one. Zero and right one. Now. We're tied for the worst in the league right now. I would. I would like to know what each of your predictions are for both teams. After six games. Well, do we think that uh, Joe Burrow is going to keep throwing 82 yards every game? Because if so, That's I'm going to... unnecessary. If so, That's I'm going to go with 0-7 uh, or 0-6.
Um, will he keep doing that? Probably not. He'll he'll he's got to get better. But that was that was tough. That was a tough time. I'm glad you just owned that, Marty. Actually, I'm not because I wanted to make fun of you more. But since you just went out, came out and said it. Not much that can be said. You just have to. Those that have a great capacity for grief have great capacity for hope. Here's here's what's going to happen, Brent. Um, I'm going to tell you what our schedule or what our record is going to be after week six. Yeah. Six games will have happened by the time. Win, 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 win. Oh, my gosh. Win, win. Oh, we're going to be five and one. No, listen, we have the Jags. That's our best opponent. We play them on Sunday. We're angry because we lost. We've got Chris Jones. We've got Travis Kelsey. So is Kelsey back? He is, he should be. It's like they're they're looking at him <laughs> day to day. Be. But okay, another they, element to the prophecy. No, no, well, okay. yeah, he'll play. That's my prediction. That's my prophecy. So that'll be the tough. <laughs> okay. okay, then this is who we have, Marty. We have the Bears, the Jets, who don't have Aaron Rodgers anymore, the yeah. Vikings, and the Broncos. Tell me, we're not going to be five and okay. one. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, sure. I... What's your read? What's your prediction for the Bengals after six games? Um, let me see their schedule. I'm gonna say they're four and two at best. Um, the, here... the Chiefs, not the Bengals. I'm talking about the Chiefs. Oh, I'm gonna say no the Chiefs way. are four who, and two. At who best. are we gonna lose to? Do you think maybe, we're gonna lose to the Jags? Maybe three and three. Who Who do you think we're gonna lose to? Speaking of, you're gonna lose to the Ravens. You're gonna beat the Rams. You're gonna beat the Titans. You're gonna beat the Cardinals. You're gonna. Seahawks, oof. Oh, very oof specific to the Seahawks? prophecy. Oof, oh boy. Seahawks are, I think they're good. Uh, He's a sure should, thing for the Jags, but I'm an oof you against should, the Seahawks. You should, you should beat the Seahawks. Luckily for you, you don't play the 49ers till week seven. Which is which does happen to be the week that I'm I'm at your house. We're going to enjoy that game. For sure. Uh, you're going to be four and two. You're going to lose to the Ravens, and then you're going to go, uh, you're going to win the next four. Okay. Go ahead, well, Marty. We'll enjoy, what's, what's, we'll, what, no, what we'll, is, be, we'll enjoy being four and two together then. I'm not. I'm not going to argue against four and two. I'm not sure we're going to lose to the Ravens, but I'm not going to argue against four and two. I, you think we're going to be three and three? What is? I just. I can't understand. I don't know. I mean, that's like I said, ten, seven, nine, eight. I'm not sure where that game split's going to be. But uh, I mean, if our wide receivers don't learn how to catch passes, then we're not going to win anything. But I just don't think it's actually possible for us for them to be as bad again as they were. Last week, like our receivers were so bad. And if any one of the, they dropped like eight passes and if they had caught any one of the ones they dropped, we win the game. Ugh. So we can't be that bad. Right. Right. Marty, 